In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. If I had a boyfriend and like if you're on a night out or something like that, like then you have to say you're into it. Yeah, I want it. Like you can't just the lad can't so just do. So if it's do. like a, a guy you just met in a bar. Yeah, yeah, I think time, you have to. Yeah, there has to be mm, verbal consent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because the guy can't just just make an assumption. Like if you're doing what you're doing with the lad and then you like try and push him off you or something like that and he doesn't stop, then that just goes to show he doesn't care, he doesn't want consent, he doesn't care if he's getting it or not. It is necessary, you can't just assume that like you can take what you want from a girl, you can't just like make an assumption. So I think if they're saying that it's not necessary, they just don't care. They just don't care. Not that, they don't think it's necessary, they just don't care. If you're with a fella, he wouldn't just make the assumption, oh yeah, he, I'm with her, I'm able to have, I can do what I want with her. He, that's what a decent lad wouldn't do that. And your age group, um, you know, the decent lads you say wouldn't do that. So you think that there is uh, a perception, uh, an education around cons- consent? Yeah, there is. Yeah, and especially in school, like you learn about it in school all the time. So they just don't care if they don't want, if they don't have your consent, and they don't stop, then they just don't care. I do think it's a little bit worrying um, that uh, one fifth. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big number. That's a big number, all right. So according to the survey, 93% of females and 79% of males agreed that consent is always required uh, for sexual activity. 98% agreed it is okay to say no. 92% agreed there is a need to talk about sexual consent even in a relationship. Um, For you growing up, did you talk about consent much? Did you talk about sex education in the classroom at home? Did it come up? Growing up, I would say not really. There was never much talk about consent or anything like that, you know, I was kind of, growing up, you know, we looked at movies like American Pie and stuff like that, which are not very representative of uh, consensual culture and so on, but uh, it's changing now, so I do believe probably that statistic will be 100% on both sides in a couple of years, which will be more positive. Well, young boys nowadays think they can get away with everything, you know, I don't know, they just look at women like they're objects. How old are these lads? They are teenagers, so they are fourth and fifth year. I think it's the parents. Well, I'd say so, yeah. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, while the COVID-19 pandemic has created enormous mental health challenges for us all, for those suffering with existing mental health problems, well, it has really intensified things. On Thursday, former X Factor star Mary Byrne opened up about her own mental health battle on the Thursday interview. Was that an immediate thing? from March last year when everything shut down that I suppose that the, the darkness descended or did it take time to build up? No, I mean in February when, when we first were told we wouldn't be working uh, I started to do walking I lost two and a half stone it was about three or four months and two and a half stone had walked off me which was brilliant and my mind was in a great place and mm. we did like all of us we thought it was going to be a short lockdown um, I think as it went on and then you were hearing of more people dying and and then you were being told there's no way you're going to be back singing for a long time. You're not going to be back out doing your work for a long time. That it just gradually built up and it was around Christmas time when the second or third lockdown, I'm not sure which one it was, that it hit with a ton of bricks. And I think it hit a lot of people who suffered with depression with a ton of bricks around that time. Yeah. Because then we were hitting nearly a year and we were thinking, oh my God, this is going nowhere. This is a huge problem and a big pandemic that's killing people. And we're just small little ducks in a pond that no one's going to even... And this is what you're thinking. Mm. No one's going to care. Now, the pandemic money was fantastic. We, it's great with us, but we still had to live. So most of my save, savings went, even though I was the government were good enough to give me, you know, me pandemic money, but I still had to live a decent life where you weren't just scrimping. And I mean, I do budget all the time in any way because... As I, I was laughing with the taxi man on the way in and I was saying, you know, people think when you go on the X Factor and you get to where I get to, you come out a millionaire. Oh, well, I didn't. rolling in it. Yeah. Rolling in I it. came out with a lot of money, but I spent it. I brought my family to America, brought my friends on holidays. I enjoyed every penny. I never had it before. Yeah. But it's all gone where the good ponies go. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. But right now I'm in a situation where I need to get back to work. Do you regret enjoying it? That much. No, I don't. A lot of people have said to me, "Did you not put? Why did you put some away?" Why? But you know something? I come from a working back, uh, working class background, and my mother never had a penny. We always seemed to get on. We always seemed to live. We just never had, you know, cash in the bank. And so 
I wasn't thinking. I was thinking like my mother would have thought, you know, let's enjoy it. I'm go- we're all going to die someday. Let's enjoy it. I wasn't thinking of a pandemic or the future. I was thinking I've got a voice. I can go out there and I can sing. I can earn a few more bob. I can keep me, me head above water. And let's the people who supported me all the way through and right up to this day, 20 odd, 30 odd years with my friends, my family, bring them away. Let's have a ball. Let's enjoy it. We've n- None of us ever had yeah. it. So I did. And you had a ball. And I had several <laughs> balls. It was great. <laughs> um, to go back to, to, to January as well, and you said like a lot of people who had you know depression or other mental health difficulties, they found that har- the hardest point in it maybe. I won't, w- w- Was that related as well to the time of the year? I know... People oh, yeah. who have depression as well, like as in, it, it's difficult. The, the the nights have drawn in. It's yeah. miserable weather. It it's is horrible. Grey yeah. and relentless. Yeah. I mean, January. I mean, most Januarys for me since I went into X Factor would be coming down off doing a big panto, and, yeah, and, and having a ball. You know what I mean? And and having a few bob in the bank, and you're just ready to kind of chill out for a couple of weeks because there is no work really in January. Very little. But you know, January can be a dull month for anyone regardless of depression, because Mm. it seems like it's the longest month of the year. Because you're coming down from the Christmas spirit. You're coming down from, as I said, my panto, for me, panto. And a lot of artists is coming down from after having a huge three months building up to the Christmas. And then for ordinary people who, like families, mothers and fathers, who are looking forward to giving their kids a present and and then the bills come in in January. So that's another thing. So yes, people who have a tendency to have any sort of anxiousness or depression, January can be a hard month for them, definitely. And do you think now when you say you're you're coming out the other side of it and you have still have those dark days, is that because you've, you, you know, I don't know, have you been going to therapy and is it is it, is it a result of that or is it just an overall sense that we we as a society are kind of coming out of COVID and a little more slowly than some might like, but yeah. that we are coming uh, out? What, no, what is it? No, it's, it's, you know, how can I put it without having 10 million people ring in and say, what's she talking about? Blah, blah, blah. I don't mind. Um, the thing about, the thing about uh, what I went through is I've gone through it a few times, but the la- as I said, the last nearly two years have been the hardest. Mm. And it's been down to a, a variety of different things happening in life with the COVID and the whole lot. Uh, for me coming out the other end, it's I just had to, I'm on medication, so I had to up my medication for starters. I had to speak to my doctor. I had to tell her the truth, the honest, good, honest truth that I was feeling like somebody had kicked me several times around a football pitch and my mind was just cracking. So she then starts to talk to me. I then start to talk to me too. People might think I'm mad, but I do talk to myself in the mirror and say, you're okay. You need to get on with your life. You need to cop on and realise that you're worthy of certain things in your life. Everybody has bad days. And so I So I don't want to be clear. You actually do that out loud. Oh, I do. Every day. I have to. Yeah. Um, and I stopped doing that because I I stopped doing it while I was going through the dark moments. And I really, really <laughs> have said to myself in the mirror on numerous occasions, stop not talking to yourself in the mirror. Because it's just, I wake up in the morning and I say, I'm alive. I can walk a little. I have arthritis, which cripples me. Um, and okay, I suffer with depression. But I know the things to do to stop me from going down the dark tunnel. And sometimes I forget and I do the things that bring me down the dark tunnel. Mary Byrne from The Thursday Interview. And if you want to hear Karen's full interview with Mary, well, all you have to do is go to newstalk.com. Now, this week, the home show visited This Isn't It at the Parts Court Town Centre. Here's Sinead Royne and Lisa Sisk. Now, this is a lovely teal wool, actually. It's lovely and soft. It's like yes. The needles themselves are gorgeous. It's like a stained wood yeah. in all different colours. They're laminated birchwood needles. So oh, there's uh, something new I learned today already. It. A little bit softer. They'll still make a satisfying click as you knit with them, but they don't have that, you know, some people would be a little bit irritated by the sound of the, the, the metal needles. Oh, really? Together, oh, you know, right, so. okay, like a chalkboard thing. Yeah, no, yeah. I actually find that quite comforting as long as nice. you don't have to do any more. Yeah, the wood, the wood ones are lovely and when they've got a lovely coating on them so that the stitches run smoothly. Uh, now, are these suitable for a complete beginner they speaking are. for a friend? Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And what else in terms of equipment? I mean, I know it's only needles and a ball of wool, but what would a beginner ask for if they were just getting started going into a shop like yours? Okay, so you can get started by, I mean, we tend to recommend uh, instead of casting on for a full scarf to try and tackle a smaller project first because what you want is that little 
kind of boost of serotonin yeah. of I finished that. Scarf for a teddy bear maybe. Scarf for a like teddy that. bear Perfect. or you can make okay. really simple um, fingerless wrist warmers that are essentially a really? rectangle that oh, you sew right. up cleverly okay. and that's it. So. Okay, okay. Now I am uh, talking to Lisa Sisk, co-owner of This Is Knit in the Paris Court Townhouse Centre and I am uh, reminding of that just to put off the fateful moment where I actually <laughs> have to do something with these needles. We'll get there. Lisa, please yes. help me start. Okay, so you need to put, do you remember the rhyme? Oh, uh, she's got it. I yeah, ha- so. Do you know what's coming back into my head now it's not the rhyme in through the bunny hole and it's, it's the nuns standing <laughs> over my shoulder tapping me saying, I, I promise not Ryan. to do that I promise so not knitting, to do that look at this oh, first time see, I've done muscle memory is there and this happened I would have learned in school as well and then I picked it back up in my early 20s it is and I completely it's right, right. there <gasps> I have a terror of the slipped stitch we used to get a special mm-hmm. crack on the on the knuckles, if we did a slip stitch now, so there I'm are. just these are my basic knitting, isn't that right? That's now? your so basic knitting stitch that you're working away. Uh, don't be afraid of the mistakes. So many of them are really, really easily fixed. Are and they? What okay. we find sometimes with beginners is they'll see a mistake in their work and they'll rip it out. They just kind of go, oh, the frustration they take it. And whereas if they brought, popped in, you know, to somebody who knows a bit more about knitting or into their local yarn shop, very often it's a very quick and easy fix, and yeah. you can save the work that you've done. Okay, I've come to the end of the row now. Look, nothing dropped. Absolutely and perfect. They're all work. in a they're all yeah. in a in a row now. Should we go the other she way? Made, this is the easiest lesson I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, steady on now. I, I don't even have enough here for a scarf or a yeah. mosquito. <laughs> Uh, so the pearl, the stitch, pearl stitch, stitch is always the one that I'm not really too clear. That's you're going, it. Kind of going in you're back going front, in are from, you? Yeah, you're taking then your what am I doing working needles on the top and you're going in from the right to left and then wrapping away from you and back towards oh, you. Oh, she you has see, it. see, don't you remember? By word, I think she's got it. There you yeah. go. I think now this is the beginning and end of what I've got. I'll be perfectly honest with you, Lisa, but if we get this row done without... I'm, dry, I'm multitasking No blood here. has been I'm drawn. I'll tell you no. what. Just as well now there's two women in the room we're able to talk and knit at the exactly. same time. Lisa Sisk from The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. And of course, you can tune into Sinead every Saturday morning from 9 till 10. Now, we want to talk about tattoo discrimination and um, somebody who's been on the receiving end of this fairly negative bias is actor and director Baz Black. Baz, thanks for joining us here on the show today. Um, Talk me through, tell me a little bit about some of the, the discrimination that you're facing. Yeah, I mean, it's um, kind of an on, ongoing thing and it has been for, for many years. Um, I mean, just being heavily tattooed or just looking different in in general, um, people are going to face discrimination when you kind of go against the grain. But I mean, it's, it ranges from everything uh, from being asked to, to move in a restaurant because um, other diners weren't happy with looking at you while they ate or refusal to join a, a gym and a membership or just people coming up to you on the street and expressing their opinion. But I mean, the main one would be the keyboard warriors on online. And just about in hate because uh, they can kind of sit behind the computer screen and hide behind that. So yeah, just kind of a a general daily experience for myself. Right. And yeah, the and reason this... why I yeah go on. No, I was just going to ask you like, have you have you always experienced this, Buzz? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's I, I'm well used to it at this stage, and the the reason why I uh, talk about it, it's not for for moaning or attention seeking or anything like that. It's just um, I'm a bit big advocate for mental health and if I can turn my negative experiences and help somebody else express who they want to be um, without fear of, of judgment or even what to expect from people um, then I'm just you know glad that I can help in any way. Did you mention there that people actually come up to you face to face and exp- give you their opinion? Oh yeah yeah that's a, <laughs> a regular a regular occurrence Um I mean you know, because of the way I look, I do avoid social situations as much as possible, especially nights out, unless I'm drumming with my band. Um, I avoid pubs and that because people are bad enough in daytime real, but with drink on them, their inhibitions go out the window. But yeah, you, um, I mean, even recently I've had uh, people coming up to me expressing that they thought that I looked disgusting and they didn't agree with it. And um, yeah, so you get quite a lot of that. I've had a lot of verbal altercations, physical altercations over the years. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm well able to deal with it myself, even though these situations can be quite awkward. Of course, uh, yeah. To deal with, yeah. And Baz, are they, like, are they young or old? Um, it varies, but a lot of the older generation. Um, and, you know, that's understandable because of the stigma that they grew up with, with tattoos that were for criminals and sailors. And, you know, so um, it's slowly, slowly changing with the younger generation. 
Um, but it does vary, so it wouldn't be just one demographic. Um, but recently, the the one a couple of weeks ago, there was two, and it was two in one week, and they were both uh, elderly and decided that they wanted to express their disgust at how I looked. Um, what did they say to you? Um, <laughs> well, the first one was actually Monday morning in the post office, standing in the line, and um, I saw the, I saw this elderly man clocking me, and I, I was kind of preparing myself. I just You have a feeling when when somebody's going to say something to you. And the first thing he, he said as he was walking back through the line was like, uh, did you fall into a bucket of paint? You know, so I was uh, a good one. Haven't heard that one before. And then he was like, that's absolutely disgusting. Uh, why would you destroy yourself? And I said, look, you do you. I'll do me. Yeah. Have a good day. You know, enjoy yourself. But he, he kept it going. And, uh, you know, I, I try and be as passive as possible. Um, so he, he just kept going a little bit too far. And I did. I did snap a little bit at him, which is a bit disappointing because I try not to do that these days. Um, and then he stopped the woman behind me in the queue to say, Jesus, isn't he disgusting? You don't need to do that to yourself. So I just told him to, to walk on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the second one was an elderly lady. I just showed up on set for um, a new film that I was in and hadn't even met the crew or the cast yet. And uh, she just happened to come out of her door and she went straight for me to tell me that I was absolutely disgusting, ruined myself, why would I do that? My family should be ashamed of me. So yeah, it's a, like I said, it's a, a regular occurrence, unfortunately. But like, of all of the things, you know, that somebody might be ashamed of, like a, a tattoo, can you describe some of the tattoos, pals, that you have? Yeah, I mean, like, I am heavily tattooed, but, like, um, I am a walking contradiction because I absolutely despise and hate the attention that it brings. Um, and some people can't wrap their heads around that, but, like, I, I you know, I did it for myself, not for other people's opinion. Um, and, you know, I do have my face tattooed, and I've been in the tattoo and piercing industry for 18 years. Um, and it does help with, you know, my acting career for, for roles and stuff like yeah. that. But it's, I mean, it, the broader question is, it's not the tattoos, it's anybody who chooses to go against the grain and stand out from the herd and express themselves, whatever way that, that may be, that um, humans, we do judge aesthetically, it's in our human nature, and I completely understand that, but I just can't understand the need for some people to come up and express their opinions. Mm. Uh, as I said to the old woman, I said, did your mother never teach you? It's not nice to say, don't say anything at all, you know. Um, it's just it's that's the broader question of it and my whole you know when I campaign these things like I said uh, like I don't like to come across as there's people in way worse situations than me so it's not a moaning thing but it's, when I do put up these posts or speak about these topics the amount of messages I get um, from people relating to it and maybe it's encouraging them to be whoever makes them happy and not be worrying about strangers opinions you know Actor and director Baz Black from Lunchtime Live on Monday, Off the Ball explored Limerick's hurling revolution. Well then, tell us about the schools. So, because I was reading our school, Reach, as an example, became one of the foremost hurling nurseries in the country. They won five hearty cups in nine years between 2010 yeah. and 2018. And then Castle Troy came up because we were just uh, looking at Groach Hegarty and thinking, well, he's made for rugby. Now, I know his father obviously has a pedigree, to say the least, when it comes to hurling, but he went <laughs> to Castle Troy. And Castle Troy would have been a renowned rugby school, and yet that yeah. was where Groach Hegarty and many others like him, you know, played hurling. And... Um, uh, won big titles in hurling at Castle Troy. So again, maybe 20, 30 years ago, the lure of rugby might have been that bit stronger. So do you just go into schools, Pat, and say, listen, we want to get hurling going, will you help us? Or do you provide the coaching? Or like, what's the nitty-gritty of suddenly getting schools to be a big part of hurling in Limerick? How does that happen? Well, you need to win over people um, in a sincere way. You know, and, people, and, and I heard the word values being thrown around a lot. Um, yesterday, Keen Lynch, I think, you know, on and off the, the pitch, the, the post-match interview really kind of encapsulated everything that's good about Limerick and, 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 and values. But I remember walking into Art School Reach, I met the principal, Bree de Bruyne, in, you know, 2005-2006. And I, by the time I, I, my, my handshake had finished, she had pointed to a dressing room that had been partly funded by the proceeds from Paul O'Connor representing both Ireland and the Lions. And she said, what can you do for us? So I kind of knew straight away that Artskill Reach meant business um, and I, I didn't have a blank check. And there's an awful misconception out there and I just want to dispel a bit of a myth as well. In terms of grassroots development, J.P. McMahon, this is a wonderful man, a wonderful philanthropist. He, he contributes fantastically 
so many ways to live, in particularly the Limerick Senior Hurling team. But like in terms of the clubs and in terms of the grassroots and the kind of work that was going on with the volunteers, th- there was no blank checks out there. And, you know, you need a certain amount of resources. Obviously, I was there and, and, and there was other some other part-time positions, coaching in schools. But look, fundamentally, um, it was a get, getting people to sit down um, talk to each other um, and, 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 and you know build, build trust between people and, and collectively I'll give you two quick examples Liam Cronin came to the Munster Council office he met Liam um, the, the, his name has gone now the county board chairman at the time uh, Liam Lennon and he, he, he set out a strategic vision for Arts Gullrish uh, over the next five years and it, 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 it ended up with the, about 2,000 euro in buses uh, being be a bus grant, so because the, there's so many hurlers in there being being transported up to the Pierce GA Club, so little things like that. I remember being in the Black Swan and Anacotti, um, uh, just over lunch with about uh, five or six parents, including um, in, 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 including uh, Tom and Dan Morrissey's dad, um, uh, sitting at there at the table, and I remember asking the question, you know, guys, okay, rugby strong, that's good. I mean, that's not a bad thing. Um, where where do you think we'll be? I said in um, in, in five years from now, and, and we were looking at the first years and, and five or six years later when they were finished school, and mm. there was there was a lack of kind of clarity. But I remember asking, you know, suggesting what, what about the Hearty Cup? What if we were competing at the Hearty Cup? And people started laughing, you know, and and um, it, it's not about what I did or what I led. I mean, I was only a small cog in, in the overall wheel, but there, there, there was this kind of surge of positivity and collective self belief. Um, that that uh, that that kind of stemmed from kind of values like humility and sincerity, etc. Yeah. And and so, Pat, just to get into the weeds of it for a second, who's doing the coaching at the schools? Because this is what I don't understand. I know you were the first development officer appointed. How quickly do you get to ten development officers? Twenty? Who's coaching them when they're in Castle Troy? Like, I, I'd love to know the answers to those, those kind of specifics. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to tell me about Castle Troy specifically, but you know what I mean. I, yeah. I, get, I get the vision, but I'm almost interested in the numbers here. Yeah. So it, it, it's a mix. You'll find it really boils down to the principal, particularly in a primary school. Right. Um, it, it, it's a mix. It's a mix. It's really teachers that that drive it, um, and that even in terms of access, whether whether it's me as a development officer going in, or or, or you know parents contributing to the coaching, um, uh, all the rest of it. It, it. Certainly, it was always volunteer led, unlike maybe other sports. You know, where the coaches are paid to come in externally. Right. Um, but but uh, it, it, it's a complex mix. I mean, if you go to Patrick's well. Um, primary school, for example, Gary Kirby's been in there for the last I don't know how many years, volunteering his time. Excellent, Mike Hurler, um, and, and he coaches. You know the principal. Right. Um, you, you go to Art School Reach. In Art School Reach, it was about four or five teachers, Liam Cohen and Niall, Niall Moore and others that really drove it, um, with the help of some 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 parents and so on. But uh, yeah, it's it's a mix of the club, uh, you know, the, the, the parents, um, mostly people in the community. But it really, it really needs to come from the schools themselves, okay. be it the principal and the teacher. So it, it was almost harnessing that amateur ethos as opposed to people might think, well, JP put his hand in his pocket and, and paid for uh, 25 hurling development officers to run a professional programme. It was, it was more harnessing the available yeah. assets. Yeah, the available assets, really. Tradition, you know, I talked about fixed and growth mindset, but like, Fixed mindset isn't a bad thing. Like there was a huge tradition. I mean, I grew up in a hand listening to stories about Mick Mackey, and I had Eamon Cregan and Bernie Hartigan winners in seven of in the, the nineteen seventy-three All Ireland. The last All Ireland we won before twenty eighteen. You know, forty whatever years it was, forty-five years. So um, it was it was uh, it was trying to to build on that tradition mm. and and uh, yeah, just make people believe again in themselves. You know, Pat Callan and Joe Malloy from Off the Ball. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Cycling is getting more and more popular, especially here in Dublin. However, if you own a bike in the capital, well, the likelihood is that it will get stolen at some point. I have. I've had uh, three stolen. Over the course of three years, I lost three bikes. So I locked it up only overnight, and then when I got back the next day, it was it was gone. So I only had my bike four days, and the bike wheel was nicked. In the past 16 months, almost 5,000 bikes have been stolen in Dublin. And those figures could be even higher, because a lot of the time when someone is the victim of a bike theft, well, they don't even bother reporting it to Gardaí. So I had gotten a cheap enough second-hand bike because I had heard how many people had had their bikes stolen. 
um, and I had locked it up after a kind of a work event um, in Balls Bridge and had gone for you know a couple of pints with a friend um, and decided actually that it probably wasn't safe enough to cycle home because there was no protected cycling on my way back so I locked it up only overnight and then when I got back the next day it was it was gone so that was in early July I wasn't that surprised and I, I obviously I reported it to the guards straight away and what they said was kind of you know we're not going to be able to recover it and this happens all the time so it seems to be fairly commonplace. So I ordered it through the bike to work scheme back in October and it went through like months delays like every month you'd ring the bike shop and they say oh we don't have a date or whatever and they were blaming Brexit then they were blaming Covid uh, and then they started blaming the, the Suez Canal and then eventually like about two weeks ago eventually got a bike and I brought it home and locked it up and four days after getting it I got a call from a girlfriend saying the wheel's been nicked and it was just gone and the bike the back wheel was there locked to the rail front wheel was gone four days I had it I rang the guards and told them the story and um, they came out and they checked it out and they just they just said I wouldn't leave a bike anywhere around here so they kind of said what were you doing leaving the bike out in the first place they should be leaving it in the apartment but like a lot of people don't have space to be keeping a bike in their apartment so my name is Jared, and this is Frontline Bikes in Inchicore Dublin it it's quite frequent I wouldn't say it's really prevalent but I'd say we do have in the region of what maybe three four people a week a week coming into us who would be kind of in looking for a second hand bike because a high end bike had been stolen and it's usually that they've bought a brand spanking new bike, left it locked up uh, either in an underground car park or uh, an area outside their house which wouldn't be under camera or uh, a kind of area that's hidden from the public. So with bike thefts on the rise in Dublin, how can we make our bikes more secure? What I would be saying to people, if you're, if you're going to go out and buy a bicycle and you're looking at spending, what, in the region of six hundred upwards on a bicycle look at how you're going to lock the bicycle and what I'd be suggesting to people is mind where you lock it, lock it under cameras, possibly put two locks on the bike instead of one it is a deterrent, having two locks does deter somebody from coming along and saying I'll take that bike because there's two locks on it Yeah, maybe take your, your saddle off your bike, prevents them from taking it and look, again maybe if you have quick release wheels lock the wheels together yeah, with two locks. Yeah, it's just a prevention. Uh, it's, it's. We currently know that the that bike sales are through the roof in Ireland. Uh, a lot of people are getting back out and getting exercise and, and want to cycle. And public transport may not be what it previously was. So what I would be saying to people is, it's your it's your bike. It's an investment. Locks. Put it under cameras and don't put it under under in underground car parks yeah because you're leaving it there for somebody that can have 20 minutes half an hour to get that lock off your bicycle without being without having anybody distract them or do you know what i mean confront them or anything like that barry white reporting for news talk breakfast on sunday hidden histories explores the hungarian refugee crisis of 1956 Here's Gavin Riley, an historian and author, Donald Fallon. And maybe because we're the new kids on the block in that sense, there was actually enormous public support for the idea of taking in some of these Hungarian Yeah, and I think there's a whole host of reasons for, for sympathy, you know, for, for the plight of the, of the Hungarians uh, in Ireland. And, and above all else, you know, we know very little about uh, Afghanistan. We know very little about, about, about the continent of Africa. But these people from Hungary, you know, there's a belief in Catholic Ireland that there's a moral obligation to support people who are, who are fleeing communism. And the Soviet Union and, and Ireland was a very tense relationship that actually used their, their veto power over a decade to keep us out uh, of the United Nations. You know, the Soviets basically felt that we were a, a lapdog, if you will, of, of, of the, of the yeah. Americans or the Vatican. Which is mad considering, well, wasn't the Soviet Union the, or the, uh, its precursor, wasn't it the only country that recognised the Republic of 1916? Which is extraordinary, yes. like In the, in the years of revolution, there had been quite real flirtation between yeah. the, kind of, the new Bolshevik state. Yeah. And, 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 and now this, we do have an internationally recognised state and the Soviets want nothing to do with they it. They want nothing to do with it. And they, they regard it very much as in, in the pocket of, of Washington and, and, and the Vatican. So they do everything they can to keep us out uh, of the United Nations. And then you also have, you know, the Catholic Standard, very influential newspaper 
uh, in its day and others too with you know, real animosity towards, towards Moscow. Several thousand students actually parade through the streets of Dublin uh, when things are kicking off in Hungary and they smash up New Books which was the Communist Party bookshop on Pierce Street. So can you imagine the students and student unions and the like yeah. on the streets protesting against Moscow's interference in Hungary? That tells you a lot about the kind of public feeling if you will yeah. on the ground in Ireland and there is this belief that the good Catholic thing to do mm. is to take in the Hungarians. Uh, speaking of Ireland's membership of the UN, Ireland does eventually get into uh, membership of the United Nations and you've actually dug up a, an excerpt from the very first speech that Ireland gives and it's a promise to try and help these refugees although there was still a little bit of doubt about practically how it would go about it. Yeah, Liam Cosgrave uh, gives that speech at, at the UN, Ireland's maiden speech and it's dominated really by this question of what, what can Ireland do to help but the thing about Ireland is Ireland was a country of gross emigration and not immigration so we were, we were much more used to people leaving the island of Ireland mm. than we were to people coming here and, and the refugees was decided we would house them at an old army camp uh, in Limerick, which, which probably wasn't the best of settings. But there are recollections of that camp from, from some of the Hungarians. One of them, Olga Murphy. What a fine name. You can, <laughs> she, you can she, probably she, tell. She didn't come with that surname, did no, she? No, no, she didn't arrive at Murphy. But you can probably tell she married an Irishman. And, and she told the Limerick Post uh, in recent years that it was an army training camp and, oh my God, an old timber barracks. We came in November and it was fierce cold. She even picked up, you know, yeah. Irish, Irish lingo. <laughs> Eventually they got some hard wood to insulate it to a certain extent. In the summer it was lovely, but it was muddy. There were no showers, no bathrooms, just one big building. That was the army washroom. And it was a big sink to get washed. You can imagine how hard that was. We were there for two years. When I first came, I didn't like the look of it. I would have preferred to have been in a decent house, but I said to myself, at least I'm free. I don't have to look over my shoulder wondering if I might say something wrong or if somebody might say something uh, about me. So just incredibly difficult uh, conditions. But this was our first go, if you will, mm. at, at trying to house a foreign refugee population. Um, and an interesting question that arose at the time is that it wasn't really clear to anyone, including the Hungarians, whether Ireland was their final stop on their flee away from their homeland or whether this was actually just going to be some, you know, if this was their final destination or were they just stopping off here while they were looking for refuge maybe near the side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, was this, as they themselves believed, a temporary place of refuge on, on a longer journey? And because of the kind of the questions around their status here, five months into their stay, the Hungarians go on hunger strike. I mean, this is front page oh, news, not only in, in, in Ireland, but, but internationally. And, and the Irish Times paints, paints a great picture of the, the camp. The four-man committee elected by the Hungarians yesterday patrolled the empty camp. No children played, no Monday wash hung. But there was laughter and singing uh, from the tar-stained wooden huts which nestle above Limerick City. The main objection of the Hungarians to their stay is the feeling of desolation, that nobody cares about their future. Most of those at the camp have been very active in Hungary, were miners, technicians and craftsmen of many types, and they mostly want to get to the Americas. Fascinating stuff there from author and historian Donald Fallon from On the Record with Gavin Riley. And of course you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1. The Mental Health Cafe was established as a direct result of the failure of the, of the government and the local health services to provide 24-7 mental health services for the children and adults of Wexford, Wexford South in particular to, to, you know, to express how they're feeling. They could be feeling a little low or they could be you know, extremely uh, psychotic or whatever, but somewhere they can turn to. You know? And then if the need arises, that we can take them on board and transfer them to the Department of Psychology in Waterford. Do you know what I mean? Or if they need be, we just sit down and have a chat, a cup of tea and a chat. That's what it's about. We're, we're, we're not here judgmental. We talk to them. But if we think they need, they need emergency care, that's what we will do. If not, we will arrange through our, our partners. It's good to talk. Counselling service, they can avail of, you know, counselling service. Where counselling service should be available to everybody, everybody within the county, you know what I mean? Instead of waiting two or three years, you know, on a waiting list. And people, the financial aspect of paying for counselling, so as, as, a, as a group, we're trying to, to fundraise to pay for the counselling. So it's, it's accessible to everybody that needs us. Have you found now that people are calling by for a chat? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. We have, you know, a lot of people coming. Not a lot of people, but we had, first night we had 11. Monday night gone, we had seven people that need a little help, you know what I mean? There was one case, one girl was very emotional and she did need a psychiatric service so we did bring her to Watford we're here to help you know Raymond Shannon there now this new mental health pop-up cafe is a branch off of an already existing support group called Wexford People Helping People 
I met the founder of the group, Claire Malone, who explained how a range of services are now working together in Wexford to improve mental health supports. There's kind of nothing that we don't really advocate for at the moment, but the Mental Health Cafe was actually Raymond Shannon's brainchild. We decided to support that as part of Wexford People Helping People, so the Help Me Through the Night is a branch off of that. So we're here every Monday night at the moment, 10pm to 2am, at the Pantry on the Quay. Local business owner Michael Hayes has been very great to us, providing us with electricity and a space to operate from. And all of our volunteers are mental health and QPR first trained. What we're offering is not an assessment service, but a cup of tea and a chat. If the person does require further services for counselling, we've partnered up with local charity It's Good to Talk. And we help provide uh, funding towards counselling for clients that may need it. We feel that nobody should have any barriers to accessing mental health services. So we're trying to alleviate that as much as possible in the sense that the Mental Health Cafe has open doors, no waiting lists and no fees. And in what ways is there a lack of mental health support in the county? How damaging is that? It's extremely damaging. Any private counselling service that's there at the moment, there's a financial aspect to that. The majority of the families that we be working with through Wexford People Helping People are coming to us because they're struggling with issues such as food poverty and clothing poverty. So counselling is a luxury to them. What we're hoping to provide through the Help Me Through the Night Cafe, through community donation, is to be able to alleviate that financial barrier. So what we're agreeing to do is act as the referral service. We'll link in with this Good to Talk. What we also do is follow up with the client. We don't just drop them at the door of the other service and leave them off. We're a consistent support and safety net for them until they feel they're back in a place that they're comfortable and no longer need our support. Claire Malone there from Wexford People Helping People. Now the charity Claire mentioned is a local affordable counselling service called It's Good to Talk. Set up 12 years ago, the chairperson of the board, Madeleine Quirk, explains the impact a nighttime pop-up cafe can have in reaching people in the community. It's not until you're involved in something like this. You can't but become entrenched in what is going on in your own town. And when you meet people like Raymond and Claire and you see the work that they are doing um, at night time. So most people don't even see them. They're not aware of what's going on. It really saddens me. I get so upset to think that people that I'm passing by on a day-to-day basis are suffering like this, you know. And I was talking to a friend of mine quite recently, a GP, and he just said to me, Madeline, you know, he said, we're seeing people now that we never would have anticipated would have mental health issues. Business people who perhaps have just drowned under this COVID umbrella that they've had no control over, and indeed those who have lost everything, who've lost people, you know, whose family members or friends have died. So we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg here. And these people are out talking to these people and needed a referral service and um, asked if it's good to talk partner with them and we are absolutely delighted to do so and through um, the cafe now and through Wexford people helping people people will become aware of the affordable counselling service that we can provide so the the community connection the network if you like this is it working really well in Wexford Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny show in case you missed it with Susan Cahill a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, is there any vaccine available to deal with the reluctance of teachers to return to work after Christmas, Easter and midterms? There seems to be a particular virulent dose that takes hold towards the end of August. Perhaps a herd immunity could be achieved if they just went back to work. It's just an idea. The spewing from the teachers' unions needs to be treated as a super spreader. Cheers, says uh, Seamus. Why don't you ask Norma why some secondary schools are returning on a staggered basis using next week to bring back just one uh, year each day, six class back Monday for one day and then that back for another week. Have they not missed out enough face-to-face time, uh, asks that uh, texter. I didn't know they were uh, doing that, but it's... It does seem bizarre. Either it's safe or it's not safe. Either they feel confident of their systems or they don't feel confident. And what you've got to ask when you do an experiment like that, what are you going to learn from it? Uh, our school got monitors from www.gasdetectors.ie uh, that uh, have a monitor station at the principal's office. Uh, not expensive either, says uh, Peter in Tala. Um, so that's uh, an, an interesting one. Um, They're maybe sourcing their own if they can't get enough from the Department of Education.
Um, childcare responsibility is the big elephant in the room of work. Such an important discussion you're having. This was one we had at 11 o'clock. The focus needs to be not on men or women, but on the children. Children have to be minded, whether by a parent or by paid professionals. The focus should be on what's best for them and not the focus on the workplace. If a parent wants to mind their own children, society should support that. We need people-focused solutions, not corporate uh, focus. And that's from Moll in Dublin. And of course, the, the, the argument there is, should two incomes be necessary to afford a house? That is a big question, because sometimes you need two cars and two incomes. And, you know, then you've got to pay for childcare in order to sustain all of that. Here we go, entering that stage of the year when teachers think they are more important than everyone else. If you don't want to teach, get another job. From The Pat Kenny Show. So how do then, how do I identify then what type of personality that my boss actually has, following on from your colour codes? Exactly, a good point. Well, the thing is that you have to be observant. You have to actually pay attention to what they say, how they say it, how they are. I mean, it's the same thing as when you try to understand your well, your partner, I guess. You, you try to no, see... No, that's not possible. A, that's, uh, that's, another, oh, that, that's another book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you have, to, you have to observe and analyze. If your boss comes in and you points with you at you with his full hand saying, okay, you, follow me, it is probably a red person. If he comes with you, or if he emails you and uh, attaches 300 Excel sheets, and it's probably a blue one, you know, or bluish. Uh, but there are some simple things to look at. So you have kind of, at least, uh, you can see tendencies, even though you might not understand them. Uh, completely, you can see tendencies and you can see, you get a lot of clues if you are observant. It's not impossible, but you have to pay some attention to it. Yeah. And should you then try and influence, knowing then, once you decide your boss is red, green, blue, or whatever, is that, do you then alter your own behavior to to get the best out of that scenario? In other words, you know, to make your life somewhat easier because you know what you're dealing with. It's always good to know, to understand who you are yourself. I mean, self-awareness is, that is key in order to, let's say, be good at, well, what we're going to call it, social skills. I mean, social skills or social competence or whatever phrase you like to use, that is based on self-awareness and social skills. You have to have them in order to, to kind of get along in any workplace, if it's with your boss or if it's with, within your team or if you're the boss and your team members are just, you know, weird and you don't understand them. You have to have self-awareness because let's say you have, let's say you have a red boss or a yellow boss. Let's say you have an extroverted person in front of you. And you know, you probably, you can't spend too much time talking about details. This is just one of many examples. You can't bring up, you know, uh, the numbers and, and going through every single, they just won't have it. They will interrupt you, just leave the room, you know. Yeah. If you know this, it could be good to know if you are yellow yourself. That means that when you have had it with the numbers, probably you are kind of in, in tune with the other ones. But if you're green or blue, you know you have to take that down. If you're red, you have to bring it up a little bit because then you hate every detail, uh, you know, yeah. in the book. So you need to know what the starting point is. And should I speed up or should I slow down? That depends on what is your kind of average pace, let's say. Yeah. And, do you know, the fact that a boss is red, yellow, blue or green, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad boss, does it? No, absolutely not. The title of the book is just to annoy people. <laughs> there are there are there are bad bosses. I mean, I've met. Uh, I mean, we, I would say I worked with uh, management and leadership uh, trainings for twenty something plus years, and I would say ten percent of of uh, of the manager population, kind of in the industrialized world, are extremely good. They are really really good. Then you have seventy percent who is kind of average, okay. They don't mess things up that badly. They don't kind of ruin our week. Uh, all the time. And then you have 20% of them who should be kicked out immediately because they are completely worthless in a leading position. They should not have given that job, been be given that job to begin with. They are really, really bad. And they can be dangerous to the organization because they just make people feel bad, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, the reason for this could be, well, that that could be numerous reasons for why they are bad. Depends on who they are leading. Some people love the red uh, leading style, and some people hate it. So it depends on how you communicate around your leadership. What an interesting take, Swedish behavioural expert Thomas Ericsson from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. On Thursday, Mary Trump, the niece of Donald Trump, joined Sean Moncrief for a very frank and expansive conversation. Here's a short clip. So why is it, Mary, that, that they have these events and, and black, he can say something and, and say black is white and... The people going to those events and people who voted for them will go, yes, you're right, Donald, black is white. I wish I could make sense of it. Uh, you know, there is something very cult-like about um, the people around him and the people who follow him. And I think one thing that's important to do uh, that I didn't do for a really long time is to stop acting like they're seeing something good in him that we just can't see, right? Mm. There isn't. They, what they are identifying with is his weakness. They identify with his being able to get away with everything. I think they love that about him. You know, they, get, they love how he pushes the envelope and doubles down even when he's wrong. And they, I think, also lo- love the fact that he is an inveterate failure who keeps being allowed to succeed. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way before, but but it it, it does seem or it strikes me that that his supporters do I, I, at the very least love the fact that he's pushing against something, which would imply that that mm-hmm. cohort of people, pretty much half of the United States, have felt something was pressing on them that they objected to, and that and that's been going on for quite some time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. One thing Donald does better than anybody I know is focus on grievance. He is so aggrieved, and they are so aggrieved. And I think part of it for them is that they feel, they do feel threatened demographically. You know, uh, white Americans are soon to be a minority of people in this country. And you know, with, with being white in America comes a lot of privilege uh, that's not extended to any other races. And they feel that they will lose that privilege if they are no longer in the majority, which is probably true as it should be. You know, uh, everybody should be equal, but they're, they're terrified. And that's, that's what the Republican party also does very well. They keep their people afraid, whether it's Mexicans coming across the border or, um, Black Americans protesting for their civil rights, and they turn that fear into anger. And that's where Donald comes in. And he's quite expert at it, I have to say. Is the grievance just based on, on race politics, do you think? One, one could perhaps make an argument that the Democratic Party abandoned uh, or, or seemed to abandon a lot, a lot of working class voters, people in middle America who saw traditional industries they worked in disintegrate uh, and had the perception that, uh, that the Democrats were really only, only cared about the coastal elites and, and, and identity politics. You know, I, I honestly think that that's, that's a political strategy that's been used on the right, because if you think about it, um, when, when we talk about the working class in America, most people really mean the white working class in America. So um, in the 2016 election, it was called economic anxiety. You know, the white working class were... Because of their economic uh, anxiety, they were supporting Donald, but black working class people weren't supporting him. You know, so even even though um, all working class people should be united, right, because they all have the same issues, whether it's unions or making a living wage or health care, that, too, is divided along racial lines. Uh, so, again, I think this is just something that the, De- the Republican Party has manufactured over the last 40 years. Now, the, the subtitle of your book is America's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Good God, Mary, how the hell are you going to find a way to heal? 
listen, I have to, I have to have some hope. I really do. Uh, it's, it's quite depressing at the moment. Um, I think this one thing that I, I'm not sure if we can do it anymore, but would be redefining us versus them. And this again was something that Donald did that to the detriment of all of us during COVID, you know, COVID should have been something that united all of us because we were all in the same boat. Right. Mm. And we were all in it together. Not only that, we could get anybody sick at any time without knowing it. So we should have all been careful and protective, et cetera. But what he did instead was make the us, his supporters and the them, anybody who didn't support him. So it would be great if uh, we could figure out a way to make us Americans and them COVID, right? Uh, So we were all working towards the same end. Some fascinating observations are from psychologist and author Mary Trump from Moncrief. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now a gorgeous set of reels from some traditional musicians from Carrigan Shannon as heard on The Pat Kenny Show. Have a great weekend. Will you do us another uh, selection? We will, yeah, yeah. We'll finish off with a set of reels. And Thanks very okay. much. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, the two Mix and Shane, that's uh, flute player Mick Mulvey, fiddle player Shane Meehan and keyboard player Mick Blake. Take it away. You missed it with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. The VHI Women's Mini Marathon is back on Sunday, June 5th. Take the first step towards the finish line by signing up now at VHI Women's Mini Marathon.ie.